Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, new and troubling information about the 16-year-old who murdered a Baltimore County police officer. Big trouble for Democrats after last night's primaries heading into the 2018 midterms. We're going to talk about how the mainstream media covers threats and shootings, depending on who's doing the talking. And the New York Times is salivating as Michael Cohen's business partner is charged with tax crimes. I'll tell you why I think the New York Times is delusional. New and very disturbing details have emerged about Donta Harris, the 16-year-old who murdered Baltimore County police officer Amy Caprio in cold blood, ran her over after a burglary. Now, I wanted to have Dr. Adam Dobrin. He's a professor of criminology. I've seen him on the show before. One of his specialties where he's published is exactly this. Juvenile justice, juvenile offenders. Unfortunately, because of the murdered police officer, Dr. Dobrin was unavailable today. He will be coming on with me tomorrow. It's going to be a very, very interesting segment. We're going to get into all of the problems with juvenile justice, sentencing, and just how many of these dangerous kids are out there. You're not going to want to miss that. And before we dig into this Donta Harris case, I want to tell you about something that the U.S. House of Representatives has done. They have overwhelmingly passed a prison reform bill. And when I say overwhelmingly, 360 to 59. And what the bill is intended to do is provide more education for federal prisoners and give them opportunities after their release. Now, in theory, I don't have a problem with this, okay? We don't keep people in prison forever. We don't. We can't. And so there's really nothing wrong with while they're there. Uh, in fact, I think there's only good things come from that, giving them an education, giving them an opportunity after their release. Look, I know someone who went to uh, White Collar, one of the club feds, for uh, Wall Street issues. Well, they made a, a lot of money, and they actually won their case on appeal, and their sentences were vacated. These poor people did nothing wrong. It was part of the Obama administration's war on wealth. It was a very wealthy but very philanthropic couple in their 60s. And under Obama, there was this war on wealth. All of their assets were seized. They've won some of those back. Uh, a lot of their money was unfrozen. Their convictions overturned, vacated, and then ultimately dismissed with prejudice. The government can't file again. Not that they would, but while in federal prison, the wife got her uh, cosmetology license. And something she always wanted to do. They were making so much money on Wall Street, but she just liked the beauty industry. And now... They'll be investing in a chain of salons and things of that nature. So in many respects, uh, it, it, the, the two years that she unfortunately lost of her life in federal prison, at least she's making lemonade out of, out of lemons. So I don't have a, the, these programs can yield very good results because there were other women in there with her that got their licenses. And now when she opens these businesses, she's going to put them to work. And so now these people are no longer coming out of jail as convicts who are going to be drains on society. They're going to be able to be gainfully employed, making a good living. I, mean, I get my, I'm a guy and I don't have a lot of hair and it's 30, you know, 30 bucks, whatever with the tip. I usually leave 20 bucks and I leave a $10 tip. So the, the barbers that cut my hair, you know, they do okay. They do okay. And uh, so, so that's a good thing, right? And more education inside is a good thing. But I, I don't want to see the left take this as they often do and bastardize it into something else. Now, the bill was originally authored by a far-left guy, Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from Brooklyn, and he was joined by a Republican from Georgia. The First Step Act, as it's called, would authorize a quarter billion dollars, $250 million over five years, to develop 
and expand programs that reduce recidivism and give incentives for good behavior. Again, I have no problem with this because when you, when you put programs like this in place, if they're adhered to, everybody's safer. The inmate population is safer. The Wall Street guy who's screwed up, who's not a hardcore criminal, he's got less chance of being you know, shanked in the shower and, and, and murdered in prison. The guards, the correction officers are safer. The entire population tends to calm down a little bit. That's only a good thing. Now, look, you can't be delusional. You're still going to have your vicious gangs in prison. The Mexican mafia, uh, all of the gangs you know, the Bloods, the Crips, Latin Kings, MS-13, they all exist in prison. The Aryan Brotherhood, they call the brand. Vicious, vicious guys, horrible guys. Uh, alongside the Mexican mafia, alongside the vice lords and the gangster disciples and all these prison gangs. They're always going to exist because in many uh, respects, their power comes from their hierarchy in prison. The Aryan Brotherhood is run from prisons like San Quentin and Pelican Bay out in California. They're now run from places like Supermax in Florence, Colorado. These are bad, bad, bad guys. And, and that prison gives them that murderous, vicious street cred. That instills fear when they're run from prison, right? But, but knowing that you're not going to rehabilitate those people, there's a large inmate population that, well, you might be able to do something with. When they come out, if you can get them a job, and I'm always, I've always been for this, they're not going to go knock off a liquor store. And so in that respect, very good. So the bill, uh, it, it, over five years, will develop and expand programs that, as I said, reduce recidivism and give incentives for good behavior. It would also boost current inmates' chances for a GED, vocational and college court, as well as substance abuse and mental health help. Again, very good. Now, this is what Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat from New York, said, quote, these are individuals who are in the system right now without hope, without opportunity, without a meaningful chance at transforming themselves, and the First Step Act will provide that. Why would we possibly refuse that. Now, Gerald Nadler, another Democrat from New York, from Manhattan, he said the legislation, he's an opponent of the bill. He said the legislation fails to reform sentencing guidelines and could even exacerbate racial biases when prison officials conduct a risk assessment for each offender. Now, this shows you the insanity of the Democratic Party. King Jeffries is a black man. He's a, a very far left black activist, politician from Brooklyn. He's behind the bill. But Gerald Nadler, the white guy who's been in Congress far too long, oh, this bill is racist. No, it was just because Donald Trump was behind the bill. Now, look, this is the kind of legislation that does make sense to me as long as it's not abused. And it's an example of bipartisanship. There can, nobody, nobody would agree. I don't care if you take the most hardcore right-wing cop or ex-cop or the most left-wing radical. Nobody would, would, would argue or should argue that someone who served a prison sentence and is being released, they served their time, their full time, no one would argue that we should do more to try to get these people jobs so that they can't or they don't want to go out and rip people off and rob people. No one would argue that if this person robbed because they were uneducated, we should try to get them educated. No one would argue that if they were sticking up convenience stores because of their drug habit, that we shouldn't get them substance abuse treatment. Right? Nobody would argue with that, or nobody should. I mean, commonsensical. And so in that context, I agree with this bill. People on the right have hammered me. They've said, oh, my dear, now what are you turning liberal? What are you moving to the center? But no, 
No, but I did work the street and I saw what happens to people when they're thrown into prison, when they're caged up, and when it becomes crime school. That's really what it becomes. Johnny Depp in that movie Blow, his character, George Young, he said, you know, federal prison was crime school. He was in there teaching inmates how to smuggle. They had nothing else to do. He was teaching them how to smuggle drugs, how to, how to you know, get cocaine in the U.S. He, it, that's exactly what it is. It becomes a breeding ground for the inmate to become more vicious, more brutal, and learn how to commit crime more effectively. So I'm a fan of anything that mitigates that. Of anything that mitigates that. Here's what Gerald Nadler said. Quote, on principle, I cannot support legislation which fails to address the larger issues of sentencing reform. Now, this is all about no cash bail. And we don't want sentencing reform. If you're a violent, savage offender, you should rot in prison. Rape and you murder. If you do it to children, if you do it to women, rot in prison for the rest of your life. Honestly, I'm a death penalty fan. Whole nother show. Though this bill makes some modest improvements in areas related to our prisons, it actually does more harm by cementing into our system new areas of racial biases and disadvantages that make worse a criminal justice system desperately in need of reform. And Gerald Nadler knows that it'll never happen in a sweeping way. It's too much of a bedrock institution, the correctional uh, system. Instead, he just wants to be a contrarian Democrat, saying to the black guy from Brooklyn, the black Democrat from Brooklyn, ha ha, I'm more liberal than you. I know more about the black experience in prison than you. Well, no, you don't, Gerald Nadler. You are a relatively upper middle class to wealthy white man from Manhattan. No, you don't. And so it should really highlight the hypocrisy and the disingenuous nature of, of Democrats like Gerald Nadler when you've got black Democrats from Brooklyn and white Republicans from Georgia coming together with Donald Trump to say, okay, you know what? This bill's a good first step. Those on the fringe who object to this, well, they should have to explain why. Now, Chuck Grassley, Chuck Grassley is opposed to this bill, but Trump is not. Let me tell you uh, what Trump said, because this legislation is a priority for the White House. And I'm reading from the New York Post story. Quote, this is from the president. America is a nation that believes in the power of redemption. America is a nation that believes in second chances and third chances. And in some cases, and I don't know, I guess even fourth chances, end quote. That's where I disagree with President Trump on this. That's what I don't want to see happen. That's a problem for me. I typically agree with the president. Not there. I don't want a third, a fourth repeat offender getting chance. I don't want a second repeat offender getting a chance upon chance. And that's my fear. That's my fear. Now, of course, uh, here's where it gets really interesting. Charles uh, uh, Koch Institute and the Faith and Freedom Coalition support the bill. Van Jones, CNN commentator, supports the bill. He actually gave Trump credit. But the ACLU and NAACP don't because it doesn't go far enough. Like Gerald Nadler, it's not liberal enough. Chuck Grassley, has uh, the bill's had a hurdle in the Senate. It might not pass the Senate. Chuck Grassley wants any prison legislation tried to sentencing reform. And his bill, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, passed out of committee this year, but hasn't gotten support from the Trump administration or hasn't gotten a floor vote either from Mitch McConnell, but nothing gets a floor. Here is, uh, here is what uh, Representative Bob Goodlatte said. And he backs the bill. Uh, but well, actually, Bob Goodlatte uh, is behind this bill, but he also wants a 
more comprehensive bill. He says, quote, we know that over 90% of all prisoners in the Bureau of Prisons will be released someday. That is an indisputable fact, agreed. We also know that without programming and intervention, which can train prisoners to be better citizens, not better criminals. And I didn't even read uh, Representative Goodlatte's quote when I told you they see prison as crime school. Prisoners are more likely to recidivate, meaning commit additional crimes. Now, this legislation allows inmates to earn up to 54 days of good time credit per year instead of the current 47 days. So they get uh, an extra week shaved off their sentence for good behavior. It also incentivizes inmates to participate in new programs, including increased phone and visitation periods and transfer to an institution closer to their home if they engage in good behavior. Nothing wrong with any of that. If, if you go to prison and you're not fighting and you're not dealing drugs in the prison and you're not causing a problem, I have no problem with an additional week being shaved off your sentence. I have no problem with you being able to be on the phone with your family and friends longer. I have no problem with them being able to visit you for longer periods of time. None at all. And I've got no problem with you being moved to another prison closer to home because the families didn't commit the crime. The wife and the little innocent kids, I have no problem if they only have to drive two hours instead of seven. Nobody's giving these people a break as long as that's what it is. I don't want this to be for somebody that gets out, commits another violent crime, gets out, commits another violent crime. That's where I'm very concerned about this bill. Now, uh, uh, Charles uh, Koch Institute released a poll last week that found that 80% of managers, human resource professionals, and employees surveyed are willing and open to working with individuals with a criminal record. Now, here's my, my issue. I don't know if I'd hire um, somebody with a past of robbery. I don't think I would. I can tell you I don't want somebody who's a rapist within miles of any business I'm involved in. But if you were a white-collar criminal, if your company was involved in insider trading and you got wrapped up in it, yeah, I don't have much problem. With, I don't have any problem hiring you. You're probably overeducated for the job you're going to get, so you're going to wind up being a pretty decent employee, and you're not going to be in a position to engage in that type of crime because you're not going to be allowed to work in the securities industry or the trading industry anyway. And so as, as conservative as I am, and as hardline as I am on criminal justice, I think nonviolent offenders, as long as you weren't engaged in bad check scams or extorting a small business, no, then I don't want you anywhere near me. But if, uh, you know, you worked for one of the big banks and six traders on the desk got jammed up and it was really an institutional problem and you guys were the scapegoats, then yeah, I mean, I don't, that, to me, that's not a hardcore criminal. That's not a hardcore criminal. That's somebody who got swept up in a wave of problems. They paid their price. They paid their dues. They paid their debt to society. And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't you know, go to sleep at night worried if they're going to go on a killing rampage in the office. That's not the nature of the crime. So for me, it's very situational for something like this. But in the juvenile system, we don't have these controls. We don't have these checks and balances. And that's why we have a dead police officer, 29-year-old Amy Caprio, three years, 10 months on the job, not even on the job, four years in Baltimore County, Maryland. We now know, we brought you the story yesterday about police officer Caprio, the juvenile justice system failed, failed. Four teens were arrested. They had committed a burglary. They were committing a series of burglaries. It is, it is absolutely, absolutely, Absolutely terrible. The chief of the Baltimore County Police, Terry Sheridan, 
Karen Sheridan said that the teens were going into homes. They were suspected of multiple burglaries. They, quote, went inside stealing jewelry, cash, anything they can get their hands on. So with that kind of linkage, we believe the four were acting together to commit these burglaries. Now, the one charge with the first-degree murder of Officer Caprio, Dante Harris, uh, a judge called him, judge called him a one-man crime wave. Judge called him a one-man crime wave. District judge over in Baltimore County, Sally Chester, said, I'm not, she said, quote, in the last six months, no offense, said this to his public defender, your client is a one-man crime wave. I'm not certain any juvenile facility is secure enough to hold him. The prosecutor, William Bickle, said, I will tell you, judge, he did, in fact, confess. Remember yesterday, there was a little confusion as to what the initial call was, burglary or a suspicious vehicle. And I said, well, it was probably both. It originated as a burglary call, then other neighbors saw a suspicious vehicle. Well, that turned out to be true. That's not because I'm clairvoyant. It's just because that's pretty common in law enforcement. It's, it's, uh, I've responded to so many of those, I lost count. Starts as a burglary. You know, one neighbor has one vantage point, right? They see people breaking into a home and maybe a side door, but the other neighbor on that side can't see the door they broke into. They just see this, this vehicle with four, three, four guys in it or one guy in it. And it looks suspicious. It's running. He's looking around. He's nervous. He's looking in the house. He's yelling things. So they're seeing the suspicious vehicle. That neighbor's seeing the burglary. Very common for those calls to come in together very rapidly and be very confusing. And so it was both, it turned out. Police officer Caprio arrives on the scene. He sees this Jeep Wrangler. Now, as is the case in suspicious vehicle calls, you get a description of the vehicle, right? If I'm calling about a vehicle, I'm going to tell the police what the vehicle looks like. She gets behind the vehicle. The vehicle starts to drive away into a courtyard area. The vehicle then makes, so this is the vehicle, it makes a U-turn. Now the vehicle is facing, the deputy's here, the vehicle's facing her. Donta Harris opens the door a little bit. Police officer Caprio at this point is out of her vehicle, ordering the suspects out of theirs. The driver, Donta Harris, opens his door a little bit and rapidly closes it, guns the engine, runs her over. Her body's thrown about 20 feet. He runs her over. Like that. She dies of trauma to the torso and head. What a terrible way to die. 29 years old, three years, 10 months on the job. Killed by this little savage who the juvenile justice system kept letting slip through the cracks. Now, here's a tweet uh, from yesterday from a guy named Brian Kubler. Brian is a, an investigative reporter in Baltimore at WMAR2 News. He tweeted, quote, Prosecutors say Donta Harris was arrested four times for auto theft since December 2017. The last time he was sentenced to home detention in West Baltimore. West Baltimore is an absolute war zone. If you've ever watched the show The Wire, that's West Baltimore, those neighborhoods. It is a war zone. The murder rate is 15 times greater than that of New York City. And in certain tracks, census tracks in West Baltimore, 50 times higher, higher than some places in Chicago. It is a horrible, dangerous place. He was sentenced to home detention in West Baltimore wearing an ankle bracelet. The state, uh, state I mean, the prosecutor says he fled Gilmore Homes last week and stole the Jeep in question before using it to kill Caprio, the police officer. Four times for auto theft in six months, and no one decided to remand this kid. No one remanded this kid. No one remanded this kid. 
And it goes back to the story we were talking about yesterday about this this Kelvin Rodriguez who uh, this Kelvin Rodriguez who uh, took the photo next to the police car with the gun released on his own recognizance. Disgusting, disgraceful, disgraceful, and it's going to keep happening. That's why the prison reform bill concerns me as much as it does. That's why that prison reform bill concerns me as much as it does. Because we have these left-wing judges that are going to look at that. Well, the nation on the whole is going soft on these bad guys. Let me go soft here. Let me release them on their own recognizance. Let me put the juvenile offenders back on the street to kill. Let me put them back on the street to kill. It is absolutely disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. And as I'm all for prison reform, if it helps calm things down, make the facility safer for the guards, make these prisoners more uh, employable so they're less of a threat to the public and law enforcement. But I am not for it when liberal judges take advantage of it, misunderstand it, go soft, and set people back on the streets to kill police officers and innocents. I want to thank the Democratic Party for what they did in yesterday's primaries in four states. They decided to uh, disregard what American voters want. They completely, completely ignored Connor Lamb's win against Saccone in Pennsylvania. Connor Lamb concerned me, a conservative Democrat, former U.S. Marine, pro-gun, pro-life, an old school Democrat, a blue dog. They completely disregarded that and went for the farthest left faction of the party. Good opinion piece by Doug Schoen on foxnews.com. He also wrote a very similar one a few days before the primaries in The Hill. And Schoen writes, as the Democratic Party struggles to find its identity in this primary season, it's clear that Tuesday's contests continued to show the internal struggle for the party's future direction. The results speak volumes. Progressives are overwhelmingly beating their more moderate primary opponents, and uncertainty remains around the Democratic Party's ability to retake the House in November. Now, understand what all this means. Sean goes on to write, the growing progressive insurgency presents serious questions for the Democratic Party as it continues its leftward movement. Here is why. Here is why I love this. Okay, let me read you the election story, the racist. In Georgia, former state House minority leader and staunch progressive Stacey Abrams defeated moderate former state rep Stacey Evans by an overwhelming margin of 74 to 26. Abrams, who is now one step closer to becoming the nation's first black female governor, noticeably, notably received an endorsement from Hillary Clinton. He's also backed by Bernie Sanders. Very, very far left. Very, very far left. In Texas, progressive Sheriff Lupe Valdez defeated moderate Democrat Andrew White. In Georgia's 6th District in Atlanta, and that's the special election race we had for Tom Price's seat, Karen Handel won a special election last year. It was the most expensive House race in history. That other guy, uh, John Ossoff, brought in like 11 or $18 million from Hollywood, the Democrat. He still lost. Uh, moderate former TV anchor uh, Bobby Capel uh, will face a community activist. And that'll be a Democratic runoff primary in June. 
He's facing Lucy, he's facing Lucy McBath, a gun control activist. Her son was shot and killed. And there are a couple of other races around the country. <clears throat> I'm not going to go through them all. The reason I love this is that it's a midterm year, meaning that on both sides, on both sides, you typically get the super voters, voters that always vote, voters that vote in every election down a local school board. They vote for dog catchers. And those voters tend to be the most uh, ideological. Now, on the, cons- on the Republican side, the Trump message is really resonating. On the Democrat side, nationally, the far left message isn't. But among those super voters, those Dem super voters, you're finding that only the farthest left are coming out to vote in the local and, and uh, statewide primary election. Meaning, the Democrats are fielding candidates that are not electable in the general election. They're too far left, way too far left. The two big races, the governor's race in Texas, Lupe Valdez is that sheriff in Texas who's constantly posing with illegal aliens, who's in favor of sanctuary cities. Texans don't want that. Texas is a red state. No matter how much they want you to believe Texas is going to go blue. In Georgia, a radical progressive is not going to win. Sure, Atlanta's a liberal city, but the rest of Georgia isn't. It's going to be very, very difficult for a radically far-left progressive to win statewide office. I want the Democrats to keep doing this. And when it concerns a guy like Doug Schoen, who's a long-time, Doug's an older guy, he's a long-time Democratic political strategist, I think we're going to see a bloodbath for the Democrats come November. I think it's going to be terrible for the Democrats. Now, a Reuters poll now has the GOP slightly up on the generic ballot in the midterms. Republicans are leading by about a point, 1.4 to be exact, with 15.4% undecided, 6.5% voting for a third-party candidate, and 3.3% voting uh, or not, not planning to vote. However, Five days prior to this new Reuters poll, the numbers were flipped. Democrats were up by 1.1, 16% undecided, 7% third party, 3.2, not uh, voting at all. What's interesting to me is of the undecideds, Republicans picked up. Republicans picked up those undecideds. I don't think Democrats win those 24 seats they need in November. In fact, I, I can't see a path to victory for Democrats to retake the House. They're going to get nowhere near the Senate. <clears throat> we'll probably pick up seats in the Senate. We're probably going to pick up in Florida here. Uh, uh, Rick Scott is going to pick up Bill Nelson's seat. So Florida should be an easy pickup for Republicans. Uh, even Democrats don't like Bill Nelson. He's been MIA and Rick Scott got a lot of uh, credit from Democrats for doing something I didn't like. He went a little soft on guns, banning bump stocks and raising the age limit to purchase uh, firearms, long guns in the state. And uh, he performed incredibly well, incredibly well when the hurricanes hit us last year. So I don't, uh, I don't see any problem with Rick Scott winning that seat. Now, as far as the House goes, Republicans are up on the generic Barrett. Rasmussen has Trump still around 50% despite all the attacks. And so I don't see how Democrats recover from this. But back to the races in Georgia, when these far-left Democrats aren't looking at the writing on the wall now, the, the Lamb-Sacone race in Pennsylvania, that district, 
Man, it is so representative of the Rust Belt, so representative of the areas that cost Hillary Clinton the presidential election. The Democratic Party is run by far leftists, right? It's run by Tom Perez and Keith Ellison. A lot of input from Hillary. Nancy Pelosi has juice because she brings money into the party. Uh, people like Dianne Feinstein, Chuck Schumer bring money in. They're all very far left. But if they're not looking, I mean, I mean who are their strategists? If they're not looking at that Pennsylvania race and saying, well, that race is, I mean, that Pennsylvania, that Lamb-Sacone race was perfectly representative of what Democrats would need to win in the midterms and need to win in 2020. They picked up a win there. They looked at the data. They looked at the candidate and they said, eh, not radical enough, not communist enough, not socialist enough. Nope. We're going to go with the lunatics on the fringe left. I couldn't be happier. I could not be happier that Democrats are doing that to themselves. This is a Christmas present that they're doing this to themselves. This is, I don't know if they want to lose. I don't know if they're where the Republican Party was uh, years back. And I'm sorry I keep doing that. My allergies are absolutely terrible. We had terrible rain down here in South Florida for the last couple of weeks. It's continuing. A little bit sunny outside the studio today, but my allergies are just shot because of the change in weather. So I apologize for my voice and sounding like I have a cold. Uh, but, but Democrats are going to, well, I, I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know if they're, they're uh, just that ideologically left that they are completely out of touch with the rest of the nation. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps that Connor Lamb, Rick Saccone race was really just an anomaly. That, that was one pocket of America, the Rust Belt, the working class people in the Midwest, into Pennsylvania, perhaps they're just an anomaly, leftovers from the blue dog Democrat days, hardworking, patriotic Americans that voted them because Democrats were better on, on uh, their industry. Democrats had closer relationships with their unions that kept them working and earning a good wage. That might be it. That might be it. They might not be representative of the nation as a whole. I think they are. I think they are. The Democratic Party, though, believes because think about where the money's coming from in the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi in her district, which is her district, which is probably the farthest left place in the United States. She's in the most liberal district in San Francisco. And Chuck Schumer, who spends his time around the far left elitists in New York City and Washington, D.C. They don't go to the Rust Belt. They don't go to the heartland. They don't come down here to Florida and speak to the Cuban community down in Miami the most patriotic, conservative, hardworking people you will ever meet. Cubans are far more patriotic. They love America far more than any New York City liberal does. The Cuban community in Miami and pockets in Union City, New Jersey, they bleed red, white, and blue. These people love America. They love freedom. The elitists in the Democratic Party don't go and speak to them. No, Tom Perez goes down and talks to Lupe Valdez. And uh, Art Acevedo, the Houston police chief who wants to stand by illegal aliens, take guns away from law-abiding people and criticize other police agencies for dare enforcing crime against bad guys. Well, this is who the Democratic Party believes are, are, are the uh, barometers of what the nation wants. But it isn't. It isn't. And I think the Democratic Party is going to be in for a really, really rude awakening in both 2018 in the midterms. Look, midterm years are typically very low turnout anyway. Very, very low turnout in midterms. 
Uh, people just aren't excited. They get excited about presidential elections. It's a big midterm year in a lot of respects, but, but for a couple of governor's races and a few governor's races around the nation and some Senate races, there's really nobody out there that anybody is particularly jazzed up about. There really isn't. I don't predict huge turnout in these congressional races. I don't predict big turnout in the Senate races. And the gubernatorial races, I think, are going to be average for a midterm year. But what is, what is inflaming passion is, are statements from people like Representative Al Green that if Democrats take back the House, Speaker Pelosi will most definitely impeach Donald Trump. Not getting Democrats out to vote for Democrats, but it is getting Republicans and it is getting crossover Democrats who voted for Trump who are very happy with more money in their paychecks. We're very happy about the way things are going. It is going to get them to the polls to make sure it doesn't happen. So people aren't really going to vote for something as much as they're going to vote against the concept of impeachment. Right now, the Democrats have no message. Nancy Pelosi is running on raising taxes. In the last 10 days, the Democrats' platform has been defending Hamas terrorists trying to invade Israel and crying hysterically that Donald Trump called raping, murdering MS-13 savages animals. That's their platform. Raising taxes, supporting terrorists, supporting criminals, and supporting illegal spying on American citizens who worked for or volunteered with the Trump campaign. That's not a platform. You can't win on that platform. But it's all the Democrats have. And the turnout and who they voted for in those primaries last night confirmed that to me. And I have to tell you, that makes me a very, very happy guy going into 2018 and 2020 because I think, forget a, forget a blue wave. It's not going to be a blue trickle. I think Republicans pick up seats in the Senate and I think we easily, Republicans easily, keep the House in November. Let's talk a little bit about the way the media reports things, depending on who's saying it. Now, when a conservative even so much as says the word firearm in the media, the left-wing media is hysterical. All conservatives are crazy. We want to have our guns. We're going to go on shooting sprees. We hate children. We want to see school shootings. The NRA is a terrorist organization, blah, blah, blah. But when Democrats say things, when people who are anti-Trump say things, oh, it doesn't even, you know, make anybody bat an eye. Now, Lawrence Tribe, Harvard Law, Harvard Law professor and known Trump critic, he's all over social media, he even engages in conspiracy theories with those lunatics who were saying Trump's going to die in prison and Russiagate is real and it's all crazy. We're seeing now that the tables have turned. But Lawrence Tribe went on CNN and he was speaking on CNN's new day to insufferable Chris Cuomo and Tribe said something now. Chris Cuomo could have jumped all over Tribe and had him clarify. However, the right is losing their minds on social media, and I don't agree with them either. But let's go into what Lawrence Tribe said. <clears throat> Chris, uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe uh, used the term. So let me, let me give you the, uh, the exchange between Cuomo and Lawrence Tribe. Cuomo noted that Tribe's book comes with a note. His book is called The End of Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. And the resistance, well, he's a resistance guy, hashtag resistance guy on Twitter. And he warned, was warning Democrats about throwing the impeachment card down 
too hastily, quickly. Tribe explained that impeachment is not about, quote, garden variety crime, but about abusing the authority that we give to high officials like the president. Now, Tribe is hysterical, but Trump hasn't abused his authority. He can fire people, the guy director, the attorney general, whomever he wants. And he said impeachment, quote, will be available if we, only, if we don't use it loosely and ring the bell every time something looks amiss. You can't be the boy who cried wolf and have a viable impeachment power. You can't use it over and over again against the, same, against the same president. He's right about that. Now, this is the quote in question. Republicans losing their minds and conservatives and some of the alt-right people who really don't think things through doing exactly what Tribe warned against, crying wolf. Tribe said, quote, if you're going to shoot him, you have to shoot to kill, end quote. So that's the part of the quote they see. Lawrence Tribe wants to shoot President Trump, call the Secret Service. It. No, he didn't. Look. I don't like Larry Tribe. I think the guy is misguided. I can't believe he teaches at Harvard with some of the loony conspiracy theories he floats. But he went on to say, and that requires, so he said, if you're going to shoot him, you have to shoot to kill. And that requires an overwhelming majority of a bipartisan kind. Otherwise, you're just going to nick the guy and make him feel empowered and vindicated, end quote. And what he's talking about is the political sense. I say it all the time when I'm talking about politicians and messaging. If you're going after Bear, shoot to kill. If you're going after a major, very powerful politician with a lot of money in their uh, campaign account, with very well-funded PACs backing them, and you take a shot, not a literal shot from a gun, but if you put a story out in the media to hurt or damage them, and you don't have the resources they have, that story better be what we call a kill shot. It better do irreparable damage to their career. Otherwise... They're going to come at you very viciously, and they're probably going to kill off your career. And that's the context. That's the context. You assert that Lawrence Tribe was talking about people going out there and shooting the killing the president. Everybody said, oh, this comes after death threats, and this comes after the guy shot up Trump Doral. But it's only the people on the right in this case. Look, I, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity critic when need be. It's the people on the right taking that soundbite out of context. But what they're really doing is counterproductive because now if a Second Amendment advocate, to make a point, goes and takes a shot at Larry Tribe, at Lawrence Tribe, just to scare him, let's around go, we're, we on the right are all going to be painted as lunatics who engage in violence. The left is going to work overtime to say that Lawrence Tribe used a metaphorical uh, narrative talking about very common in the media business and the political business. We call them kill shots. Somebody drops a really damaging story. I probably said it on the show. Stormy Daniels is a dud. It's a blank. It's not a kill shot. It's a commonly used term. And for people on the right to make it out to be something it isn't actually does a disservice to the right. If God forbid some lunatic who identifies as right and, and, and enjoys the Second Amendment, the rights it affords us, uh, the, the Second Amendment, or I should say the rights that it tells government it cannot take away from us, we're all going to be blamed on the right. It's going to be worse for us. We are sometimes, especially when it comes to the alt-right, our own worst enemy. They think they're being creative. They think they're being gotcha. They think framing that out of context is going to damage the other guy, but it's not. It's just not intelligent. It's not an intelligent way, a strategic way to go about damaging the other side, the side that really wants to damage this nation. And the mainstream media is complicit. Hunter Pollock. Hunter is the brother of Meadow Pollock, who was killed 
at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. He and his dad, Andrew, have done a phenomenal job. Uh, a very apolitical. They lean a little bit right, the Pollock family, but they, but they haven't engaged in politics. But Hunter Pollock is right. He put out a tweet yesterday about the shooting at Santa Fe High School in Texas. And Hunter Pollock wrote, and he lost his sister. He speaks with authority. It's sick that since the majority of Santa Fe students oppose gun control and favor school security measures instead, that the media won't give them nearly as much coverage as the Marjorie Stoneman MSD, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas students. Students of Santa Fe High School, my DMs are open to work together with you. I know your pain. Hashtag fix it. And Hunter Pollock does know their pain. Young sister was gunned down brutally by Nicholas Cruz. He does know their pain. Heartbreaking. But he's right. A couple of days ago, I tweeted. Uh, four days ago. Here's an image of my Twitter. Uh, at CNN, why no town hall for the Santa Fe school shooting? Is it because the, he, I won't say the shooter's name, he didn't use an AR-15 and this community supports the Second Amendment? Michelle Malkin quote tweeted Hunter Pollock this morning. Uh, Michelle said, and this is why the Santa Fe kids won't get a CNN town hall. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful that CNN that presents itself as hard news has ignored, has ignored the families of the victims in Santa Fe. They don't get a town hall. They don't get to give their opinion on gun safety, on school security, because they're not anti-gun. Because they don't have a Ted Deutsch and a Debbie Wasserman Schultz out there in front of them. Because every town was an embrace there. Every town for gun safety. Michael Bloomberg's far-left funded group, Moms Demand. No, this is Texas. They love their Second Amendment. They would rather see the school hardened. They would rather see armed personnel in the schools. And they have a media blackout. It is absolutely disgraceful. And it's just a very interesting example of the way different, these, all these examples, Lawrence Tribe saying what he said. Because if Lawrence Tribe had said, if you're going to shoot, shoot to kill, and he was a Republican strategist talking about Obama, it would have been CNN that framed his quote out of context. Chris Cuomo would have attacked him. And it would have been stupid. And we would have criticized them for doing that. So we shouldn't do it. Because we look stupid when we do it. But what the, what the uh, mainstream media is doing by not giving the Santa Fe victims, 10 dead, 10 dead, by not giving these victims and their families the same forum that they gave the anti-gunners because these families, these families are not anti-gun, is disgraceful. And I think the president is right when he wants to talk about pulling the credentials of certain outlets. CNN is no longer news. It is far-left opinion. It's not news. There's nothing objective about what they do. And I just hope in this AT&T takeover of Time Warner that we're going to see, let's call them, editorial changes at outlets like CNN. The New York Times is salivating on news that a guy named Avengi Friedman who's a business partner of Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, the guy who I think is being persecuted for only being Donald Trump's lawyer. Well, the New York Times, I'm reading a CNBC story because I don't even want to read the New York Times story. The New York Times is salivating. Uh, their headline, well, the CNBC headline is, Michael Cohen's business partner, Venny Friedman, agrees to cooperate as part of plea deal. New York Times. Now, uh, 
This guy has agreed to cooperate with federal and state prosecutors. You would think, by the way, the New York Times and CNBC and all these others are salivating that this is about the president, that he's a law partner of Michael Cohen, that he has worked with Donald Trump. But no, this guy, Friedman, is somebody called the taxi king of New York City. And what Friedman does, Michael Cohen is invested into taxi medallions. And if you don't know what those are, in New York City, yellow cabs in New York City, ones you can wave down that have a meter, those famous yellow cabs, on the hood of the vehicles, I'm sure you've seen it, but if you haven't, if you've never been in New York City or you didn't notice it, riveted in as a medallion. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Black with a number, it says New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission. And that medallion is what enables that cab to be yellow, to operate with a meter, and run under their control in the New York City and Taxi and Limousine Commission. And the numbers of those medallions are regulated. And it's a very big business. You buy these medallions for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Most of the cabbies you see out there lease those cars day to day. The medallions are owned by companies that own many of them, large companies. This guy Friedman being one. And he was the biggest. And, and uh, Michael Cohen was in that business. And he and, and Friedman were partners. This has nothing to do with Donald Trump or anything having to do with legal representation of Donald Trump. Friedman, Friedman pleaded guilty to tax evasion up in Albany, New York. And the Times is suggesting that Friedman's cooperation, quote, could be used as leverage to pressure Cohen to work with special counsel Robert Mueller. Why? Why? A guy invested on tax, a guy, a guy uh, indicted and, and, and pled guilty to tax evasion in Albany, upstate New York. Why would he in any way, shape or form have anything to do with the president of the United States? It's like the reporters of the New York Times doesn't, the reporters of the New York Times don't even understand that. Now, Friedman managed taxi cabs for Cohen. At one point, Friedman was one of the largest operators of taxi medallions in New York City. Interestingly enough, when I uh, first started getting my feet wet in politics, I was still in the NYPD, I uh, crossed paths with the Friedman. They were uh, very politically involved. And I remember a, a, an older, older man, he's now passed away, he was a very powerful attorney in New York City. He knew them very well. He knew the family very well. He died about 10 years ago, and he was a political mentor of mine and he knew them and they really were powerhouses in that business in the taxi cab business they had nothing to do with real estate they had nothing to do with donald trump michael cohen had always been as, as a matter of family investments involved in those taxi medallions very lucrative business why wouldn't he be and uh the new york times is reaching cnn reported last month that prosecutors are interested in cohen's financial dealings with a husband and wife who own a large tax business in Chicago. Well, prosecutors are interested in everything surrounding Donald Trump. They want to know what Donald Trump ate at a diner in 1985 to see, or if Donald Trump doesn't drink, but if he did, you can bet they would be going to every bar in New York City saying, did he ever order a white Russian or a black Russian? Collusion. It's ridiculous. Friedman was arrested last June on charges that he and another business partner stole more than $5 million in state surcharges that are imposed on taxi rides in New York City. So the, the cabs collect all this money and they never sent the state surcharges, which are tacked on at the fare to the state. People get arrested for this all the time by not sending sales tax, surcharges, excise taxes, things like that. Excuse me. It's common. The amount of taxes he pled guilty to evading was much less than that. Only 50 grand. Not even a major case. 
other cases involved an agreement to cooperate with prosecutors, probably against the other people involved in the taxi and tax scam, not against Donald Trump. So they keep going back and forth, back and forth. Now they bring in Stormy Daniels. It's so ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. A guy who helped Michael Cohen manage taxi cabs and taxi medallions several years ago gets arrested in upstate New York on tax evasion with a completely different business partner and the New York Times, CNBC, and the mainstream media are salivating. The complicity that the mainstream media has with Robert Mueller and his team, it's tragic at this point. And stories like this, stories like this are only designed to hurt the president and people around him. But like we spoke about in the last segment, it's not a kill shot. Or was it, you know, it's not. It's, it's, this isn't even a blank. This isn't even a dud. It's like, you know, me, I'm, I'm on air. I'm a conservative. Let's say we had a liberal administration and the liberal administration was coming after me because I was critical of them. And a guy that I worked in the police department with 18 years ago gets jammed up because in retirement, he evades taxes in his new business. You know how they would report it? Cardillo's, Cardillo's former NYPD partner indicted Cooperating with prosecutors could spell trouble for Cardillo. I mean, that's how stupid this is. That's how loose the connections are. And it is absolutely journalistic malpractice for the New York Times and the rest of the mainstream media to run headlines like this. 